Now, for the talk this evening, most of the time, for those of you who never heard me talk before, I just make up the talk as I go along. I don't plan the subject of the talk. But nevertheless, tonight when I came in, somebody asked me, there is a lot of worry and concern in the world. There's always worry and concern there. But about you know, the unstable situations in the Middle East and Russia, Ukraine, and there's many sort of much conflict in other parts of the world. Ajahn Brahm, can you give, please give some Buddhist advice on how to deal with conflict? One of the uh, answers I gave is a lot of times conflict seems to depend upon you know, us and the other, and the us and the other are sometimes really, really different. To justify violence against an, another, which will never do to your best friend, kind of like they deserve it. But of course, no one deserves violence on them. And one of the solutions is when you see somebody you're having some sort of conflict with, never look at, the, at their faults, the things wrong with them. See if you can look at the things you respect about the other person. Even if you're a different religion, a different race, a different gender. See what you have in common, not what's different. Differences is what can create violence. The commonality just creates appreciation and understanding of the other. And that is where I think a lot of that conflict can be overcome. If you ever went to school grew up with, were married to a person of a different religion or a different uh, political thought. You can have arguments together, but the violence doesn't seem to arise. I was very proud we have a group of Singaporeans at, at Jana Grove right now uh, doing a retreat. That's one of the reasons why after the talk is finished, I run off to get back to uh, teach the retreat. But one of the things which I was quite proud of over in Singapore is one of the disciples told me that they were married to a Hindu. This Buddhist who comes to my meditation retreats and talks, they're married to a Hindu, they've got two children. One of the children is a Muslim, the other child uh, is a Muslim, uh, is a Christian. So they've got a Buddhist mother, a Hindu father, and a two kids, a Muslim and Christian. And I, I said, is that inspiring? I told them that no, you should have another child and make sure it's a Jew. Get the, get the full, full compliment. Why not? 
Many years ago, here in Perth, there was a, a Thai lady, she was a Buddhist, and she was married to this Westerner, an Italian, who was a Catholic. And I remember she came and asked, look, what should we do? Should we go to the church or go to the temple? You know the answer? This was my predecessor, Ajahn Chakra, said this. I thought, yeah, well done. He said, on Saturday, both of you come to the Buddhist temple. We have to come together. On Sunday, both of you go to the church together. Wife, you have to understand your husband. Husband, you have to understand your wife. Even if you may have some philosophical difficulties with what the other is doing, still, go together and find out. I like those ways of making bridges between different cultures or ways of thinking. And I only talk about my successes. Every time I have an idea and it goes wrong, I keep it quiet. But one of the beautiful successes I had many years ago was when, you know, through the Cancer Support Association at the time, now it's called Solaris, cancer doesn't distinguish between whether you're a Christian, a Muslim, a Hindu, a Buddhist, Mahayana, Vajrayana, or atheist, or freethinker, or follower of the great white ram, or whatever. I don't know what the follower of the great white ram <laughs> practices, I just made it up. Sounds good. Doesn't matter what they're doing, but the fact that people have these different ways of looking at their life, and you want to try and find a way that you can do things together. It was all based on this story which I, I read so many years previously. And I like stories because that's what you guys remember. When I asked you what I talked about afterwards, you say, oh, this joke, that story. And that's fine, because that's the life is a series of stories. So this was the story of this old man who lived in a very remote part of Australia on a farm. He worked his butt off for his kids. He worked so hard and his kids did well at school. They went to university, they started a business, different businesses. And when they had established themselves in the city, that's when they said, we should invite our father to come into town. He's never been in the city before. He's been so busy working hard for us. We should actually show him what a city is like. So they invited him into the city and they, it's amazing, they had all these buildings everywhere. He saw things he'd never seen before. But one day he was passing a little house and he heard a sound. And this sound, most people would run away or put their fingers in the ears because it was a terrible noise. But his curiosity took the better of him. He decided to find out what was making this noise. And he followed the noise to a little room in the back of the house. And that's where he saw this young boy playing a violin. 
totally out of tune. He was just learning. But the old man never knew that. He thought all violins must sound like that. I never want to hear a violin ever again in my life. And of course, many of you know that story. I've told it many times. It's one of my favorite ones. That afternoon, another part of town, he heard this beautiful sound. It was so sonorous, melodious. It just, you know, gave him goosebumps. And he followed that to its source. In the front of a room, he saw this old woman playing an instrument which looked exactly the same as the little boy in the morning. It actually was a violin. But this was a maestro. She had been practicing all her life and she played that violin so beautifully. He realized his mistake. It wasn't the violin's fault. The person had yet to learn how to play it properly. And he said that's the same with religions, politics, gender or whatever it is in this world. People don't know how to play it well yet. Fortunately, I've been in places where there's many Muslims, Christians, Catholics, where people do know how to play their instrument well. And it convinced me it's not the fault of religion as much as the fault of a person who doesn't know how to play that religion properly. I've had some wonderful times, you know, with Catholics and Anglicans. I was telling people over in a Singapore retreat, some of you may remember when because of working with the Cancer Support Association, I met their Father Frank Sheehan. He was one of the, the um, chaplains there. He also happens to be the chaplain at Christ Church Grammar School, this really posh Anglican school in Perth. And so he said to me one day, said, those assembly talks you know, which with the, the priests give, they're really boring. You tell jokes. Why didn't you come to our school and give the morning talk? And you know what happens, when I get interesting invitations, I love to, to go to them. You know, one of those interesting invitations I got a couple of years ago, unfortunately because of COVID I, I couldn't go. So they had this group who were doing a, a seminar on ghosts, real ghosts. And it was scheduled, I think for 2021, I think on Halloweens, and it happened to be a full moon night that night. And I said, yes, I'm into this. <laughs> What's the venue? Karakata Cemetery, that'd be a good venue. <laughs> He said, no, no, we, we've hired a, a hall to give the talk. I think it was next to Lake Munga. I've given talks there before. I thought, wow, yeah, this will be really good. When I start my talk, though, I will only go if when I start my talk, you'll turn off the lights. <laughs> Make it interesting. But anyway, because of COVID, it was all not allowed to meet. But anyway, when it's an interesting talk, interesting place. I'd always put my hand up to go if I possibly can. 
So anyway, to go to a top Anglican school to give the morning assembly talk, I thought, yeah, I'm into this. But apparently, I had to get there early because they had to have the speaker outside of the hall while they settled the children down. The children, they were young adults. And so we were talking with the principal and the chaplain beforehand. And he advised me. He said, look, you're a Buddhist. This is an Anglican school. But nevertheless, welcome. But when we go inside the assembly hall for the school, there's a little shrine of Jesus there. I'm an Anglican, said the, um, <laughs> said the headmaster, and they, obviously the chaplain was. You're a Buddhist, we will bow, you don't need to bow. Have you ever seen the Buddhists and others bowing to the Buddha behind me? Has everyone ever explained why we do that? You don't get told off if you don't bow, it's totally voluntary. So anyway, that was what they told me. You're a Buddhist, you don't have to bow to the Shrine of Jesus in Christchurch Grammar School Auditorium. But when he told me that, I decided to be the typical Ajahn Brahm and cause trouble. <laughs> I said to him, Headmaster, I demand my right to bow to your statue of Jesus. I said it like that, you know, like so sort of angrily, sort of. And he was really discombobulated. If you don't know what discombobulated means, it means exactly the same as bamboozled. Two of my, <laughs> two of my favorite words, which most people don't understand, but you get to understand their meaning. It just means this, it means discombobulated, <laughs> confused. Unfortunately, I could do that because the chaplain knew me really well. So he said, oh, that's just Ajahn Brahm. He's okay. <laughs> and then I explained to him, in your statue, I'm not a Christian, I'm a Buddhist. And he said, in your statue of Jesus, there's something I can see which I can respect. I'm not going to bow to everything which Jesus stands for, Jesus did. I'm going to bow to that part of it which I, which I like, which I respect. You know, one of those things which is said in the Christian Psalms, in the Bible, be still and know that thou art God. I told many priests that and they get discombobulated again. Because you're not supposed to personalize the ultimate and number two, stillness. That's not praying. That's not doing good deeds. Stillness is the word for samadhi in Buddhism. Deep, peaceful meditation. And I've often explained that term, especially recently to the Singaporeans. Be still and know that thou art God. You get into the deep meditations, the jhanas, and that's what it feels like. In Christianity, you would call that union with God, blissed out of your head, so peaceful, so still. There's more to it than that. 
But you can understand why that's actually said in the Bible, but I don't think anyone understands because they don't do any meditation anywhere, anymore, at least not deep meditation. But anyway, I said, there's always something I can see to respect in anything. That's what I'm going to bow to. So I went inside there, they did a big bow, I did a small bow. And they started to respect this Buddhist. And I took it further, I said, when you go to a Buddhist temple, you see a Buddha statue, what do you bow to? Do you bow to the metal? Do you bow to just it's nice and clean? Is it so something if you bow to it, you can get your wishes fulfilled? People told me the other day it was lottery day. They didn't know when the next uh, full moon was. But <laughs> Will you win the lottery if you bow properly? <laughs> okay, I told this story. I'm just going totally off track here. There was uh, this nun, a very famous Buddhist nun, who was teaching a retreat over in UK. That's what I'm going to do after on Monday or Tuesday. Two retreats, two small retreats. So she was teaching a retreat in UK and when the retreat was finished, had to drive to Heathrow Airport to fly back to, I think she had a monastery in Germany. I shouldn't give too much, oh, I will give all the details, why not? She's dead now. So anyway, after teaching the retreat, they had to go to have something to eat, because monks and nuns, we have to eat, finish eating before midday. So the only place they could find, it was a restaurant, but next to a pub. You're not supposed to go in a pub, but it's only just going in the front door and then a side door into the restaurant. Nothing wrong with that. So they went there, they had their, their lunch, and when they paid for it, they had to pay for it in English money, the days before credit cards, and so they had their change, had a few English coins, which they couldn't, it's not really worth um, exchanging. There's not enough of them. So the driver had about six pounds of English coins to get rid of. There's a good solution. There's one of these, what we call in Australia, pokey machines. I know in, in UK we used to call them one-armed bandits. I think it's a much better term <laughs> than one arm. You know, the thing you pull and you lose all your money all the time. But they had only had a few coins to get rid of. So the driver put the coins in, pulled the handle, nothing. Pulled another coin in, pulled the handle. She got to the last coin. And just at that moment, the nun walked out. She'd finished her lunch. And she was just walking past the machine when the driver said, you've got much better karma than I have. You know, a very highly respected nun, you pull the handle. <laughs> and in a moment of heedlessness, she shouldn't have done this, <laughs> she pulled the handle. <laughs> that nun, many of you know, Ayakema. I think you know her. 
She's visited Perth, very well known, but she's passed away now. Otherwise, I'd be in big trouble. <laughs> Not really. She pulled the handle. And what happened next? I did ask everybody. It is true. Jackpot. The big one. She was just standing there watching, and all these things went down. Jackpot, 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 jackpot. And all the bells went, and all this money poured out of the machine onto her, man, man, her nun's robe. Lots of it falling and falling and falling. She'd won the jackpot. You're not supposed to touch money, not even one coin. And it all fell on her. <laughs> and if that wasn't embarrassing enough, everybody in the pub put down what they were drinking, and they just went so quiet, they were in shock. A Buddhist nun had won the jackpot. And as they were quiet, that's when the bartender rang the bell. And he announced that in that pub, they had a rule that anyone who won the jackpot, it didn't matter who it was, you had to follow the rule, had to buy free drinks for everybody in the bar at the time. And his poor Buddhist nun, had to buy gin and tonics, whiskies, beers. <laughs> she had no choice. So the problem was she pulled the handle in the first place. So monks, never do that, okay? <laughs> if you win, you're in big trouble. <laughs> so sometimes people ask, that's a true story. Sometimes people ask, but how come that can happen? You know, you're just an ordinary human being. Winning lottos? Would you like to win the lottery? <laughs> no, it's too much problem afterwards. Win on a horse race bet? There's two stories. First is fellow he had a nice sleep one night, but in the sleep, he had a dream. Have you ever had these really amazing, clear dreams at night, and you realize that this is not usual, this is something weird? In his dream, he dreamt of these angels, seven of them, and they all lined up in front of his bed, with seven big pots full of gold coins and they handed them to him 49 pots of gold and he had to receive each one of them and when he received the last one that's when he woke up and unfortunately when he opened his eyes there were no angels in the room he didn't mind that, but he was really disappointed there was no pots of gold, not even one. It was just a dream. But nevertheless, it had a meaning. Because when he went down to breakfast, his wife had already gone to work. And so when he had his breakfast, he saw that morning his wife had made him seven pieces of toast and seven boiled eggs. 
Actually, I got the number wrong. It was five. Five angels, five pots of gold each. Crikey, I messed this one up. Doesn't matter, you get the message anyway. So that morning his wife had made him five boiled eggs and five pieces of toast for breakfast. What's with the magic number five? And imagine that was you. And then he, you know, he had his toast and eggs and made himself a cup of tea. And then he saw the newspaper, the morning newspaper. And he saw in the morning newspaper, the first thing he noticed, the date. 5th of April, yeah I got it wrong, 5th of May, crikey, <laughs> I need to take a rest, the 5th day of the 5th month, number 5 again, so just to see he looked in today's horse racing, now you all know there is a horse racing track in Perth called Ascot. A-S-C-O-T. Five letters. That's when I said the number seven, I just quickly thought the voice track Ascot hasn't got seven letters. <laughs> That's why I changed, changed it. Ascot, five letters. Five angels, five bots of gold, 5th of May, and five pieces of toast, five board decks. So he looked in the horse racing that afternoon in Ascot. He looked the fifth race in the afternoon. He looked at horse number five. And you know what it was called? Five angels. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> and he thought, this can't be true. He checked it. Yes, five angels was running that afternoon. <laughs> so he went, he took the afternoon off work, never told his wife, guys, if you want to try this, tell your wife, you'll get out of trouble. But he never told his wife. So he went to the bank to keep the lucky number five, he took $5,000 out of his account. And these things only happen once in your life, if they happen once at all. So <laughs> So he drew $5,000 out of his account. He went to the racetrack and he chose the fifth bookmaker in line and put $5,000 to win on five angels, horse number five, race number five. The lucky number five couldn't be wrong. There's just too many things were saying number five, number five. And the lucky number five wasn't wrong. His horse came in fifth. <laughs> I love telling that story. And if you think you've heard that story before, you haven't heard it as many times as I have. Every time I tell it, I hear it again. <laughs> so anyway, the reason I tell such a story, you can relate to it. We all sometimes do the same stupid things, especially when you were young. But anyway, the story which was similar, I just can't avoid this story, it's totally off subject. But nevertheless, 
we used to have this couple who would you know, come to Perth. You may remember them, you know, Gus and Julie. You remember them? I think they're still alive, but they got really old now. But Gus, he was English from Cornwall. Every time I said English, he said, no, I'm from Cornwall, different country. The Cornish people think so. <laughs> and he married a Singaporean girl. And they moved over here to Perth. And they were really good supporters of the monastery when they could be. But anyway, he told me that every year they would go to Singapore so you know, she could be with her relations. And he had to go too. But every time he went to Singapore, he had to sit there and listen to his wife, chat, 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 with her brothers-in-law and relations, blah, 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 blah. I think in uh, the Chinese language there. And he didn't understand a word of it. It was really boring. But he had to do, do that for his wife. So anyway, one day, one day, the brothers-in-law took pity on him. So much pity on him, they said, we'll take you out. Let's go to the racetrack in Singapore. This is not a joke. This is a true story. And in Singapore, usually people just go to a temple first of all to make some merit. And they did that. And they cleaned up this temple, which was really dirty. Then afterwards, afterwards I went to the racetrack. Amazing, good karma they made. They all lost heavily. Lost a lot of money. But he told me, that night, he had a dream. And he looked in the Straits Times newspaper and the horse he dreamt of winning, a horse that name was running that afternoon. And so he rang up his brothers-in-law and said, guys, we lost yesterday, but I just had a dream of a horse winning in this race, and that horse is running today. Come with me, we can get our money back and maybe more. That's with Gus. You know what his brothers-in-law said? This is Singapore. No spirit in Singapore will tell an Ang Mo <laughs> You understand what Ang Mo means? That's a Singapore word for a Westerner. It literally means red-haired. It's not red-haired, but anyone who's a white person, you're Ang Mo. It's much better than when you go to, than when you go to Hong Kong. You know what they call me in Hong Kong? Kwai Lo. <laughs> And what does Quilo mean? What? <laughs> yeah, it's not nice to say, I'm not going to say it. <laughs> but anyway, so they said that no spirit Singaporean temple would tell an Ang Mo, we're not going. And of course he went by himself, and it did win. You can imagine what those brothers-in-law thought afterwards when he told me he won a lot of money. These templed spirits in Singapore, they look after all these foreigners, they never look after us. <laughs> they were really upset. <laughs> anyway, what was I talking about? Oh yeah, <laughs> go to Christchurch Grammar School. 
<laughs> anyway, I said, I'm going to, I said, when you come to a Buddhist temple, the first bow is not because it's a magic statue. The first bow is for what it represents to me. What I, what I see a Buddhist statue, what it means to me. And that was to, for virtue. The goodness, the kindness, the virtue in your life. I love that. It's very easy to bow down to it. So my first bow is to virtue. My second bow is to peace. This huge thing which is an important part of all types of Buddhism. The meditation. The making peace with one another. Somebody makes a mistake, we forgive. We don't fight a war. We see something more important than fighting wars. Making peace. You see the last bow is for compassion, kindness. I love acts of compassion. Whenever you see it, it's beautiful. Those are my three bows. And, okay. <laughs> the three bows. And so, when I explained that, it really got through to the headmaster of Christ Church Grammar. He organized a trip for all his kids to come and visit Bowdoin Island Monastery, but he came himself in his own car early and he asked to see the main hall, the meditation hall at Bodhinyana. And together we walked in there. He took off his shoes as well. And the two of us bowed three times to the Buddha. I thought it was beautiful. I'd explain why we bow. We're bowing to virtue, peace and compassion. I think even a senior member of Hamas could do that. And uh, Netanyahu could do that. Even Vladimir Putin could do that. Why not? It's something which goes way past conflict to acts of kindness, compassion, to peace and to virtue. Part of virtue is forgiveness. But more than that, it was, I was breaking down the barriers, you know, between that Christianity and Buddhism. I've loved doing that for such a long time. Even that one time I was giving a uh, a presentation in a chaplaincy conference in UWA. And the person I was giving this uh, presentation with was a Catholic abbot of New Norcia Monastery, Abbot Placid. You got to be friends with him. And how can a Buddhist, you know, be legitimately Buddhist and hang out with a Catholic abbot? We had something in common. We were both abbots. And talking with him, I said, you know, we sometimes we get some very crazy people want to stay at Bodhinyana Monastery. It's a lovely place to stay. We've got a nice guest house there. And he says, we have also some crazy people stay at Anunosia Monastery. So I said, can you tell me who stays there and I'll tell you who stays at our place. <laughs> So we can have, you can tell me who the crazy ones are and I can tell you who the crazy ones are so you can be prepared. That's what we did. 
I should, he, you know, he passed away some years ago. But anyway, when you had that contact there, it was very helpful for both of us. So anyway, we were good friends. And so that was where at this conference, this is how to break down you know, religious violence. How to break down those ways of thinking which think that you are separate from others. That my religion can't get on with your religion. That my God in heaven is better than your God in heaven. So, the person who asked me this question was another um, Anglican, no, sorry, he was a Catholic, he was a Jesuit, um, intellectual. That was Father Frank Brennan. You may have heard of him, I even I'd have heard of him. He's a very well-respected intellectual, so respected that even some governments have asked him to lead a panel to update the Australian Constitution. You know, he's a very, very big brain guy. So he was in the audience. And so at this conference, he put his hand up. I've got a question for Ajahn Brahm. And as soon as I realized it was from Frank Brennan, I realized straight away, no jokes are possible here. <laughs> he had a big brain. So anyway, his question was, and it's a question which some of you sometimes ask, what traditional, authentic Buddhists, what is her understanding of God? You may be asked that by your friends, you come here all the time, you're a Buddhist, yeah, but what about your idea of God? Do you believe in a God? Was there a God? How do you imagine a God? And most people fight these wars over the different ideas of a God. So he put me on the spot. You could very easily say, and it's you know, quite um, legitimate to say this, that in Buddhism we never think that this world is under the control of a God or was formed by a god, it wasn't the creator. We don't have that in Buddhism, but that wouldn't get you anywhere. That wouldn't, that's true, it's in the suttas, the teachings of the Buddha. We want something which makes people think and will create more understanding and more wisdom. I do want to make something which will create more difference and divisions between us. So that's when I said, I just made it up as I went along. I said, my friend, Abbot Placid, he's been telling me this for years and years and years and years and years. One of his core beliefs, his belief as a Catholic, as an abbot, his belief is everyone is searching for God. It's very easy to reject that, say, no, that's not wrong, that's wrong, I'm not searching for God. I'm Beautiful meditation, don't need that. You could say that, which is one way of saying it, but there was another thing I could say which was more helpful. This was my friend. That's how he says things as a Catholic. You can understand why he says that. So I'm going to start from his idea, everyone is searching for God. What am I searching for? 
What is Ajahn Brahm searching for? What is all the people who come to the Buddhist Society of WA searching for? What are you searching for when you come here? What do you want? And one of the things which I said was everyone is searching for respect. We have many LGBTQIA plus people come here. Many people come here in wheelchairs, they may be deformed, they may not look the same as everybody else. They come here, why? They want to be respected, allowed in, find a place where they're treated as a human being, not a sickness. That's one of the things I found when I used to visit hospitals to counsel patients. When I came in, I said, uh, by the way again, there was this Tibetan nun I was counseling. She was in the, one of the first hospices over in um, Osborne Park. You know, that was funded by human, by people. You know, it's crowd, not crowdfunding, but they did many, many things to get the funds to pay for this, and it was shut down by the government, and they made a more private hospice afterwards. But this hospice, it was more than good enough, and this, is, this nun was dying in there. And one day, she called me at Bodhinyana Monastery, and she said, I think I'll be dead within 24 hours. She was right. She had this terrible cancer. She knew she was on the way out. She wanted to see me before she departed. And so, if someone rings you like that and you trust them, they say they're going to die in 24 hours, of course I dropped whatever I was doing. I was doing some building, as I was in those days. Get in a car and get driven to the hospice in Shenton Park. And when I arrived, they did say the rules were you have to check in before you can go to the patient's room. So I checked in, there was a nurse there who was the medical equivalent of Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> she said, this patient has given strict orders, she does not want any visitors. When people are rude like that to me, I kind of, well not really rude, but I get firm with them. I said, but she called me about an hour and ten minutes ago and I've rushed from Serpentine. She wanted me to come here and she said, we have to respect our patient's wishes. Yes, but I've come such a long way. And she got upset at me. And she said, come with me. And she took me to the, the door of her room in the hospice. And the door of the room, there was a big poster which was handwritten. And said, absolutely no visitors. And the nurse looked at me and very gleefully she said, see? You know what's going to happen next, you've heard this story. I really enjoyed this. I shouldn't have done, it was mean of me. <laughs> I looked too, and on the bottom, in small print, were the words, except for Ajahn Brahm. <laughs> I'm not making it up, it was there. I couldn't help it. I looked at that nurse and said, See? <laughs>
I really enjoyed that. I shouldn't. But anyway, that's how being honest. <laughs> so she grunted and I let me in. But the best thing about that story was I asked this um, Tibetan nun, why did you write that? Why did you, you know, on your last day, why in, on earth, why am I the only one allowed in? And she said something which I'm sharing with you, so you can do this whenever you visit someone really sick in hospital. She said, all the other people who come to visit me, my friends, my relations, they took one look at me and they get emotionally distraught. And they look at me, I've just lost so much weight, I just look a, a shadow of who I was before I got sick. And I have to deal with their trauma. Crikey, I'm going through enough trauma myself, I'm going to die soon. And she said, you're the only one who comes in here and tells me jokes. Ajahn Brahm, she actually said that. Please tell me the latest joke. So I realized what it was happening. I was treating her as a human being, as a person. And I didn't talk to the sickness. I talked to her. The doctors deal with the sickness. Friends, you just talk as like a, a good friend. You hang out together, you spend time together. That's what she wanted, like if she saw me in a coffee shop, just to chat about this and chat about that. The last thing she wanted is to talk about her illness. She knew she was going to go, and she did. She died that night. So that actually gave me a lot of inspiration about how to visit people in the hospital. But anyway, going back to, uh, what was I going back to? Oh yeah, Christchurch grammar. Oh no, just Abbot Ab Ab Placid and Father Frank Bennett. <laughs> you know, I like just going this way and that way in my talks because it makes it more interesting. I don't know where I'm going next. I get bored with my own talk sometimes. <laughs> this way. This way, it's really interesting, even for me. Where am I going to go next? <laughs> so, anyway, Buddhist understanding of God. I said, if you're an atheist, if you're a Catholic, Muslim, or whatever you are, what are you searching for? And respect is one of those things. You see, too many people in this world, because they belong to Hamas, or because they're a Zionist, or because they belong to the, the rebel motorcycle gang. You know, I once did a funeral service for a bikey. Again, years ago in Fremantle Cemetery. The reason was that the, the mother used to come here. And the mother, she's a really good woman. And her son was a bikey. You know, that's what people do sometimes, they want to join that, they weren't into drugs. But he crashed his bike into a, a lamppost, killed himself. And the mother was distraught, obviously. This young boy had killed himself. And so, to do the funeral service, she was a bit of a spiritualist. So she said, I'll do the funeral service myself. Not to save money, as much as to uh, make it more personal. And she invited me to go along just in case. It's a good thing she did, because even at the start of the funeral service, she stood up there and tried to speak and got emotional. 
She just couldn't do it. And I was in the back there somewhere. But the people who attended, they were all in their leathers, you know, with lots of studs in and chains. It was the real bikies. And the, the women who were there as well, they were dressed like they'd just come out of a nightclub in Northbridge. You know, actually, they were hardly dressed at all, if you know what I mean. <laughs> There's more flesh than clothes. And I'm a monk. So I didn't want to make a fuss, so I was <laughs> just standing in the back. And that's when she teared up and she said, I don't think I can carry on, but there's a professional in the audience, in the back. Ajahn Ram, help! <laughs> so I went to the front and did this funeral service for bikies and their girls. And they were so sweet afterwards, because I never judged them. They said, oh, wonderful, sir. Thank you, a wonderful service. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. They were all so polite and cute afterwards. And I thought, people's understanding of bikies, maybe it's not really that accurate. Not these bikies anyway. I was kind to them. And they were just so kind to me. So anyway, back to uh, UWA conference. What are people searching for anyway? It is that respect. Even in a relationship in a marriage, you hope and you need, you want your partner to respect you. You're not perfect, you make mistakes, you do things wrong, but please respect me, I'm trying. And also there's obviously a lot of problem these days with people with so-called emotional difficulties, ADHD, the uh, what's it called? Um, something spectrum disorder. Again, autism spectrum disorder, and I don't know what other spectrum disorders. But how many people are actually normal? Sometimes I feel a bit discriminated against, but for being normal, <laughs> I feel I don't belong. <laughs> I think you understand what I mean there. <laughs> Interestingly, though because I'm going to UK uh, soon, that when I went to UK, I think a couple of years ago, you know, a bit earlier, I know it was earlier, because I went to visit my brother, and after visiting my brother, I had to get to London to give a talk at the London Buddhist Center. And so the only real way to go is to get on an underground train. I had one of these uh, oyster tickets. And so, I said, well, just put me on the terminus, it doesn't matter what time it is, I know the way to get there, I've got a ticket, I'll just get on the train and I'll get to London. And so they put me on the, this train and just I was the first person in the carriage, I just sat there, it was a while before it would actually leave and start its journey. And I'm not exaggerating. After I sat down, first of all, all of these zombies came into my carriage real zombies, and then a few witches, and then a few ghouls. It was the 31st of October, <laughs> Halloween. Because it was Halloween, all these people were going 
in the underground train into London for Halloween parties. And that was the first time since becoming a monk I felt I belonged in that carriage. <laughs> <laughs> I never felt different. <laughs> and even somebody came up and asked me, what are you dressed as? So you know, sometimes it's nice, it's nice to belong. And you can understand what it must feel like when you feel like you don't belong. It's one of the things which we seek for. To be respected. To be accepted. To be loved. And to be able to give love. To be at peace. To find some meaning in your life. Where you can grow and learn. What do you search for in life? Why do you come here? You know all the jokes. <laughs> Why do you come here? What you search for is what we all search for, no matter what religion you are, what race, what gender. That respect, that peace, that understanding, that acceptance, that sense of freedom. You can add to that list. But then I said, my friend Albert Placid said everyone is searching for God. This is what everyone I know searches for. So let's add those two together and equal them. <laughs> that must be what God is. Respect, peace, love, kindness, acceptance. And that takes down the barriers. What do Palestinians want? What do Israelis want? What do Ukrainians want? What do Russians want? When you find out what people really want, there's always a way forward. That's one of the reasons why I thought that answer was really good. And even Father Frank went and said, oh, that's really good, I can use that. I said, please, no arguments but taking the question deeper to create peace and harmony in our world. Okay, I've got to stop talking now, but open up for questions. I never thought I was going to talk about this. I thought I was going to talk about something more Buddhist, about meditation and retreats. But somebody asked for that. Why not? Was that okay? Okay. Okay, questions. The three C's. Questions, comments, or complaints? <laughs> I know question starts with C. We've got one over there. Oh, is there anything from overseas? Are there any questions from overseas as well? Yeah, okay. Oh my goodness, I think the first one would be from President Netanyahu. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Okay. You had a question first, go on. Absolutely. And I said that because joy, happiness is an important part of the path as well as the goal. I've been teaching that the last six or seven days over in Jhanagro to the Singaporeans. 
you get to that stage in your body, it's nicely relaxed, but you feel the joy in relaxation, that sheer pleasure in it, you get more relaxed. Then you get in this present moment. That is delightful. It's like you're on holiday, you've got no business to be done. My goodness, I'm supposed to be boss of the monastery down at Serpentine. I'm also the spiritual patron of the Buddhist Fellowship in Singapore and Bodhinyana Singapore and the spiritual director or patron of the Cambodian Buddhist Monastery and goodness knows what else. I go crazy. Except you have a lot of fun. You make sure you, you see the value in what you're doing. And when you do that, you bring joy to serving. Committee meetings. Do you like committee meetings? You put joy into the committee meetings. <laughs> Why not? Honestly, we do tell jokes at our committee meetings. Isn't that how many other committees? You were the president once. Do we tell jokes? Sometimes. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes that's enough. I'll, I'll accept that. <laughs> and look, you did such a good service over all these years. This is what you get afterwards. Beautiful temples and monasteries and nuns' monasteries and retreat centers. Well done. So, when you can put fun into whatever you're doing, especially meditation becomes so blissful, you really sort of bliss out. So, you certainly did enjoy it. Thank you for that question. People always think the spiritual paths are really hard. A lot of endurance. I can't do this. I can't do that. This is what happened once to me when I was flying, I think, in Cathay Pacific. I think from Hong Kong to somewhere. In the economy class. In the afternoons, so I can't eat anything. And then the person in the seat next to me they were eating, and I think it was fish and chips and mushy peas. <laughs> oh, my, my favorite. And I could, like mushy peas, I mean, that's one of the things I really like. I shouldn't tell you this, because anyway, I think you all know by now. And then I was looking at it, and oh. The only time I've ever seen mushy peas on the menu on any flight, it was in the afternoon. I could see it, smell it, <laughs> admire it, <laughs> but couldn't eat it. <clears throat> so there is some suffering on the holy path. <laughs> okay, some questions from overseas, I'll deal with them. Does that sort of answer your question? Okay, go on. Yeah, sure. If you know the world inside of you, then you know the world outside you. I meant um, physical world. Yeah, physical world, a whole lot. To really know it. You know, the part of Christianity which I was really interested in were the Gnostic Christians. And they had some of their scrolls um, put in uh, little clay, clay sort of jars, and buried close to the town of Nag Hammadi. It became known as the Nag Hammadi Library. It's well worth looking at, because they have some really wise sayings, such as, 
He who knows himself knows the truth of all things. That's the sort of stuff which is, makes a lot of sense. If you want to know the world, you've got to know yourself first. Anyway, um, question one from Germany. How do you get back to meditate when you get stuck sweeping the body and treating with kindness but cannot pass that point? What to do? Of course you pass the point. Be more patient. You will pass it. But if you want to pass it, that's impatience, then that blocks it. Question from India. How to handle the feeling of injustice has happened with you legally? Should I fight further or to leave it to karma? The answer would be to leave it to karma. There was this one prisoner I used to visit in Karna Prison Farm years ago. And when we got to know each other, and he asked me one day, he said, look, Ajahn Brahm, I'm really being honest to you, I respect you, I'm trying to keep precepts. The crime for which I was put in jail for, I did not do. I didn't do that theft. I was put in jail for it. And he looked at me and he could see the pain in that. But then, as I was thinking, I also know that in prisons, you don't have much access to mobile phones. You can't just call up a lawyer or get anyone to help you. He's put in jail for something he never did. But then he looked at me and he smiled. He was one of his old prisoners who was just, you know, really way too cheeky for good. And he looked at me and he said, but Ajahn Brahm, there were so many other burglaries where I wasn't caught. I guess this is fair, putting jail for something I didn't do. He taught me the law of karma. How many, t how many times have you been caught by the speed cops? How many times have you not been caught when you're speeding? <laughs> so when you are caught, it's fair. <laughs> I kind of like that idea. And that is actually very Thai Buddhist. That's how I grew up. It must have been something I did in my past life. That's why I caught the fine in this life. Question three. How does one get out of a loop of self-blame? Thank you. A loop of self-blame, again, you're looking for some fault in you and you're not looking at all the other things you did which are faultless. It's the old two bad bricks simile again. Of course you did things which were wrong in your life. I've done things which were wrong in my life. You know, okay, I'll confess. Can I confess? When I was young, okay, here we go. <laughs> I spent some of the most wonderful years of my life in the loving arms of another man's wife. True. I loved her. We hugged, we kissed. It was another man's wife. It was my mum. <laughs> My mother was married to my dad. It was another man's wife. I loved her. We kissed. We hugged. <laughs> not, not much of a confession, is it? But it fools a lot of people many times. I think you shouldn't do that, Ajahn Brahm. We respect you. A loop of self-blame. You look at something good you did. 
And that means you don't deserve blame. Look at the praise as well. How many of you get into a loop of self-praise? <laughs> and Donald Trump does. <laughs> but not for long. I shouldn't say this. <laughs> Question from Germany again. I'm probably about to face a divorce and having arguments with my mother. Could you give me an advice and a blessing so it would resolve well? Thank you very much. You're going through a divorce. You know one thing when these things happen? There's no blame. Don't blame yourself, don't blame your partner. Sometimes these things happen and you're, you're faced with it. Here it is. Make the best of it. And sometimes it works out so well. You learn so much for your next relationships, not to make the same mistakes. When it gets to blame, you're consumed by anger, your intelligence goes down, wears out your brain, and wears out your, your resources of money. Why is it in divorces, people kind of say, well, we're not getting on any longer, let's just separate, without getting lawyers involved? Sorry, are there any lawyers here? <laughs> Please don't sue me. But it's so expensive. What it is, you know, you had a relationship, it doesn't work out. Sometimes that happens. So if that does happen, learn, forgive, and have no sense of wanting revenge or wanting blame. Last question. Oh, great, from Jordan. I am too tired to make positive changes in my life. No energy to change negative mental habits. Stop smoking and live a better life. How can I move on from this stuck situation? You may, well first of all, you've got no energy. Get some sort of retreat situation, meditation, go to some retreat in a religion to rest. When you rest, you have no energy now, but it's amazing just how you can get energy in the future. Lack of energy is not permanent. Find out the causes which make you energetic. A lot of the time it's a physical problem. You may be old, sick, you may be, you just need a, a quiet place to stay for a while. I've said this many times, no one has actually gone forward with it. Any one of you who wants to make yourself a fortune and do a lot of good karma, buy a nice quiet resort somewhere. And all you do, you don't teach, you don't sort of give any instructions, it's not a golf resort, just a place, quiet, where people can just sleep. Just have very comfortable beds. Breakfast, lunch or dinner, whenever you want. And all you do there is just get to bed and sleep, maybe go for a walk by yourself, quiet, that's all. How many of you would like to go to such a resort? I've been teaching, working too hard. <laughs> Don't make it special, we're teaching this, we're teaching that. You're just letting you, at your own pace, just relax. Unfortunately, people always want to do something or get something. Anyway, and even for the money for it. So just do it by donation. 
But people get such good results that always give lots of money to you afterwards. Look at Jhana Grove, where I'm now going to go in five minutes. You don't charge for anything there. People give donations. And it's always got enough money to pay for the next bill. That actually business model works. You trust people and people always come to the party and donate when it's needed. Okay, that's the last question here and I need to get back to Jhana Grove to continue teaching a retreat. So, thank you all for listening. Sadhu, Sadhu, Sadhu. The three Sadhus. <laughs> okay, I'm now going to bow and I can make a way to go back. <laughs>